Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice podcast, and I'm your host, Shane Phillips. Each episode, we discuss a different housing research paper with its author to better understand how we can make our cities more affordable and more equitable. A quick announcement right at the top here, for the accredited urban planners out there, as of last week, you can now receive credit toward your AICP certification just for listening to us. You can just search for UCLA Housing Voice Podcast on the APA certification maintenance page, and you'll find all of our episodes there. My apologies that I have nothing to offer the rest of you. I guess you'll just have to keep listening for the love of the game. Anyway, back to our regular programming. Our guest this week is Professor Michael Hankinson of George Washington University, and my co-host is Mike Manville. Today, we're talking about how political representation affects the production of housing, not just how much is built, but also where. Hankinson is a political scientist, whereas most of our guests have been urban planners, sociologists, and economists. So this is a bit of a departure for us, but I think you'll find that it pays off. We're discussing the consequences of a shift in California's electoral politics that got started with the California Voting Rights Act of 2001. For reasons we get into during the interview, that law spurred many cities to change from at-large elections, where council members represent the entire city, to district elections, where cities are divided up into districts and each district elects its own representative. There were very good reasons for that shift, especially the increase in racial and ethnic minority council representation that followed. But Hankinson finds that cities that shifted to district elections also ended up approving less housing. He describes this as a supply equity trade-off. We lose some housing production, but we gain representational equity. Of course, as regular listeners will know, reduced housing production has its own equity implications as prices rise and renters and households of color are most likely to bear those costs. This is a conversation about how we deal with situations where there are diffuse benefits but concentrated costs, how we can structure and bundle reforms in ways that address different needs for different groups of people, and the limitations of empowerment that emphasizes the authority to say no, but doesn't really create new avenues for how to say yes. These are all questions that have a very deep relevance to housing policy. And while this analysis focuses on California, the takeaways should apply just about anywhere. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and we receive much appreciated production support from Claudia Bustamante, Olivia Arena, and Hannah Barlow. If you want to help the show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. And if you have any feedback or show ideas, you can email me at shanephillips at ucla.edu. Let's get to our conversation with Professor Hankinson. Our guest this week is Michael Hankinson, Assistant Professor of Political Science at George Washington University. And we are here to talk about political representation and its impact on housing supply at the municipal level. Welcome to the Housing Voice Podcast, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to chat about this today. And we have another Mike or Michael as our co-host today, Mike Manville. Welcome. Thanks. Always a pleasure. So let's start with the tour before we get into your research. You are now a DC local. So where would you suggest that a couple outsiders like Mike and I visit if we were in town? Bonus points for anything with special appeal to housing or urban planning nerds. Yeah, so my big hobby, uh, my love here is is cycling. And one thing that I really struggled with in New York City, as much as I love the city, I was there for three years, was 
Um, it's very it's very hard to get around, particularly for recreation cycling, like as as a, as a bit of a workout. And DC is just teeming with these rails to trails connectors that just kind of cut through the heart of the city, go into Northern Virginia, uh, up into Maryland. I, I had no idea between uh, the W and OD rails trail line or the trails following the Anacostia River. And why I think this is interesting from a like housing urban space uh, nerd perspective is that there is this plan to build a light rail system on one of these former rail lines, these rights of way through suburban Maryland, just outside mm. of DC. It's about a seven mile walk from the you know the Washington Monument as a, as a point of reference. And what's exciting about that is I think it captures a lot of the debates uh, that are out there and some of the conversations that we're gonna have today in terms of um, when you want to do something that I think is positive and responding to things like climate change or just traffic congestion for your everyday commute, you have the natural confluence of homeowners being skeptical of it, but you also have people who I think would normally be in favor of this, people who like the uh, trails, like cycling and want to fit that within the project and that can slow things down or add prices, uh, increase expenses. And then finally, you have um, concerns about how this is gonna affect housing prices and uh, lower middle income communities, even in suburban Maryland. And as far as I've followed it, I haven't seen a clear housing plan around responding to that. And so something that, that I think is uh, generally widely supported has been in the works for on the scale of 30 years is just bringing these questions about equity forward. And it's just, just slightly outside the boundary of DC. So if you get out there, you can see the progress in work and hear the debates play out in the Washington Post. You know, every time I hear someone from a city like Washington or, or other places talk about a network of protected bike paths, I can't help but feel bad for them because, you know, one of the real joys of cycling in Los Angeles is the knowledge that at any minute, any number of vehicles could just crash right into you. And I just like, <laughs> is it really, what's the point if you're not constantly terrified? Well, and that, that constant adrenaline rush really helps set PRs, you know, when you're <laughs> yeah. dodging cars. I, I'm just in this peaceful, tranquil rail to trail path and I can't, I can't get a personal best. I feel like it keeps me on my edge. You know, I'm, I'm constantly grateful to the Cadillac Escalades. So <laughs> <laughs> don't forget the Range Rovers and the Range Rovers. Okay. So your paper is titled the supply equity trade-off, the effect of spatial representation on the local housing supply with your co-author Asya Magazinik from MIT. And in this paper, you're comparing housing supply outcomes in cities with two different types of political representation. At large, where elected officials represent the whole city and are voted on by all of its constituents, and district representation, where the city is broken up into districts and officials are elected within and only represent those individual districts. There's a lot more to the study than just that, but the fundamental question is whether cities permit less housing when they switch from at-large to district elections. And spoiler alert, you find that they do. Before we even talk about the housing aspect of all of this, though, tell us a little bit about how at-large and district representation work and some of the main arguments for and against each, especially in terms of political representation of racial and ethnic minorities. Absolutely. So the larger question here is how do we convert votes, individual votes into elected officials that kind of our representative democracy runs off of? And you can have some high-minded conversations about this. And really uh, in the United States, this played out within cities uh, around the turn of the 20th century when you had these progressive performers who tend to be 
white, upper middle class individuals uh, who cared a lot about the decisions their city government was making. And their argument was that if you have people who are running citywide, they are running these at-large elections, and they're going to care about voters all around the city, not just in their individual neighborhood. And therefore, the decisions they make may be more reflective of the city as a whole, which seems kind of intuitive, but you think about what is that Mm -hmm. in contrast to? And it's in contrast to what was also playing out this time was the establishment of urban political machines that built their power base from largely newly arriving immigrant communities and were very good at channeling political benefits into neighborhoods at this geographic scale. And the idea was that these individuals who were getting power through these district elected councils didn't have the city's interests in mind. They had just had their narrow constituencies within their districts uh, at heart. And that's kind of the, you know, kind of the chalkboard uh, uh, philosophy behind it. It's in the city's best interest. Mm-hmm. But we can also think about what happens to the types of people who get elected on these two systems. And so within an um, election, if you have what is called polarized voting, which means there are certain patterns, we see it with parties, right? Democrats vote for Democrats, Republicans vote for Republicans. Uh, but within cities, you really don't have these strong party labels. So what you tend to have and what you had back at this time of the progressive reformers was racially polarized voting or ethnically polarized voting, where the white mm. candidates would vote would get the votes of white voters and non-white candidates would appeal to the votes of, of, of non-white voters. And when you have this racially polarized voting, what it means is that in an at-large system, whoever is the majority voting bloc, so 50% of the voters that turn out for that election, they can effectively vote in an entire city council exclusively from their generally racial or ethnic group. And so even if you have just you know, 40% of an ethnic outgroup or racial outgroup in an at-large system under polarized voting, where people vote according to race or ethnicity, they're effectively boxed out of this of the electoral system. And this was something that uh, was also, you know, kind of the less openly spoken argument behind the white progressive reformers is their way to kind of maintain their control of the city and mm. arguably pursue what they saw as in the city's, quote, best interests. And so what changed and where district elections came from was this recognition that this led to city councils that were not descriptively representative of the underlying population. And so fast forward to the 1960s, you have Voting Rights Act of 1965. And in section two of that reform, the target was these Southern cities with at-large elections where black voters were, you know, as we saw at the turn of the century, kept out entirely of city council elections. So the reform there was to draw these districts and the requirements were that you could push this reform under the Voting Rights Act under two conditions. One, you had to have this what they called uh, politically cohesive voting. It's the same thing as racially polarized voting. If you show these patterns where black voters are voting for black candidates, white voters are voting for white candidates, that's the first bar. The second one is you have to have a sufficiently large and geographically compact population. Uh, You can also think about this as a segregated population. And the goal here is that you need to have that concentration so that when you draw these lines, you can draw a district that is majority minority. Because if you don't have a big enough minority population, or if you have a population that's evenly distributed throughout the city, you could draw lines all night on these different maps, and you're not going to get a district where that minority group can achieve representation, get a majority of the votes within that district. And But that, that, that last point is key, because that's what this reform in California, that gives us this opportunity to do this type of study, 
did was it lowered that last requirement. It essentially said, look, for, forget these maps. You really just have to show that you have this politically cohesive voting, racially polarized voting. And so it by lowering that bar of that last step, it opened the floodgates for lawsuits to be threatened, litigation to be threatened across California. And it also required that the defendant, in this case, the city government, would have to pay the expenses, all legal and court fees. Even if there was an out-of-court settlement, they'd have to pay kind of the civil rights firms for their time. So we've seen this rollout across California where whether or not a city under you know, our classical notions of, of the VRA is a good candidate, where district elections would really benefit the minority population, we're seeing these cities become threatened and therefore uh, either you know, fight it in the courts, uh, rack up millions of dollars of legal fees and eventually capitulate, or just saying, I, we, don't have our, we don't have it in our budget to really fight this fight. We're just going to uh, switch preemptively to district elections. Yeah. And they probably learned over time that they were unlikely to win a legal fight anyway, right? It seemed like most of the times this was challenged, they, they, they ended up losing. Yeah, almost certainly. I think there are a few fights happening right now that may give either a glimmer of hope or try to find alternatives to districts. Um, mm-hmm. But really, there's been no concrete kind of pushback to, to keep at-large elections. And just for a little more background here, uh, as you write in your paper, nearly two-thirds of U.S. cities still have multi-member at-large elections, and only about 14% have these single-member district elections. The remainder are sort of a hybrid where you might have some seats at-large and other seats that are district. I know Seattle works this way. I think Boston does as well. And just a little more background here. So the law you're referring to, I think you might have said, is the California Voting Rights Act of 2001. So it's been in place about 20 years. I'm curious, do you do you have in mind any like particularly egregious examples of this kind of polarized voting in the at-large at system and, and maybe an example of a place that shifted pretty dramatically after the change to district elections? Well, in the paper, we, we, we catalog what are the groups that are most dominant in these elections uh, in terms of winning seats and uh, kind of what is their share of elections won compared to their share of the population, what you would kind of expect under sort of you know, uh, random draws or, or simulations. And we find that it's certainly the case that, that minority populations are, are suffering from underrepresentation in these at-large elections. In terms of particularly egregious cases, um, it's hard to say. We're focused more on the housing reforms. We've generated some maps of places like Escondido, California in particular, where, and I know we're going to get into the mechanism of how this works, but the pattern of where housing goes in that city completely changes in this short period of time, even once they switch mm-hmm. to to these district elections. So I, I don't have a particular case in mind uh, that's changing the politics there. Well, I, I let me, uh, not with respect to housing, but I, I have a few egregious cases of, of at-large <laughs> representation for sure. Um, you know, because I do want to uh, sort of emphasize what, what Michael is saying, that the at-large system, there was a, a progressive impulse behind it, but it really could lead to some terrible outcomes. And I think people who've lived in California for a while might remember the city of Bell, right? It's a small community uh, south of downtown, predominantly uh, immigrant, a lot of immigrants who are overwhelmingly Hispanic, as, as is often the case in Southern California. And there was a scandal in oh, 2010 or 11 or so where it, it came out that the city government had essentially looted this, the city. It was a, it was a little kleptocratic state where the city manager was being paid five hundred thousand dollars a year, uh, and the city council was sort of 
emptying the coffers. And what was so striking is that the, the city council was, was predominantly white in a city that was overwhelmingly Hispanic and, and, and a large portion of the residents simply couldn't vote, right? Because they were, they mm. were foreign born. And what that left you was a sort of classic case of the problems of at-large voting, which was a white minority in a minority of the sort of the space, but that made up a narrow majority of likely voters. And so you elected a government from a small part of this uh, city who was then totally uninterested in being responsive to the city itself. And, you know, there were many things that went into that, but I think there was general agreement that had Bell had districts, like that just couldn't have happened. But these are the sorts of things that can happen. And when you hear about these sort of deeply unresponsive city governments, oftentimes they are in part an artifact of this at-large representation. That unrepresentativeness, it leads to a quote that actually is in your paper, Michael. Um, So this is actually a quote from Anaheim City Council member Jose Moreno that you included in the article. And what he's doing here is relaying something that he's heard from one of his white constituents. And he says, quote, She was saying, the only thing I noticed in my neighborhood is the more Latinos move in, the worse services we are getting. I don't see our streets getting taken care of. I see divestment happening from our neighborhoods. And what I've come to understand is it's not that Latinos diminish the neighborhood. It's that politicians diminish Latinos. And when they move into a neighborhood, that neighborhood is not invested in. So I kind of hear that in the Bell example. And I appreciate how that framing from Councilmember Moreno places the blame on the elected officials rather than the people moving into the neighborhood. And it sort of illustrates how at-large elections can drive a wedge sort of between different racial and ethnic groups and encourage more exclusionary attitudes. My impression in this specific case is that the white constituent quoted here is not anti-Latino and wasn't proposing that Latinos be excluded from her neighborhood, but she was just kind of correctly, it seems, diagnosing a problem with at-large elections. I think that dynamic is worth discussing in its own right, but I'm mostly introducing it to connect us back to housing production here. You're trying to answer several questions in your study, one of which is whether less housing is permitted in cities that shift to district elections, but also regardless of the total amount of housing production, you're also looking at whether it's distributed differently between neighborhoods within a city when that shift happens. So you hypothesized that there would be less overall production in cities with district elections and that it would also be more evenly distributed. Why was that your expectation? Yeah, so when we spoke about at-large versus district elections, I introduced these kind of two key ingredients. One is polarized voting, which typically in the American context is racially polarized voting. You can go to other contexts and maybe more religious polarized voting, but polarized voting. And then spatial segregation, right? The third ingredient and what brings in housing production or really any sort of locally undesirable land use, we call it a Lulu in the paper, that's one term that people throw around, but just things that society needs but people generally don't want to live near that, right? Mm-hmm. One, the third ingredient that affects that is what is known as legislative deference. It's also known as autodomanic privilege or log rolling. That's this idea that each council member has control over what happens in their district. So, for example, if you are a member of city council and something's proposed for your district that your constituents don't like, well, there's a risk that if it gets built, you're going to lose your job in the next election. Um, if we are a city council and we hear about you having this, this, this problem, 
rather than each of us, kind of the, the other N minus one people on the city council thinking about what's in the best interest of the city, we might say, well, let's just go along with whatever you want for your district. Because we know that when that same type of land use is proposed for our district, you'll you know, scratch our back and vote along with what I want. And in this way, we all kind of protect each other's seats in our next election cycles. This is kind of like a, a frustrating point, particularly for people interested in urban planning, but it's kind of fascinating from a surprising solution to a collective action problem on the city council that kind of protects each other, but maybe doesn't solve the overall thing. This matters because as people of this podcast uh, may have heard, housing is often framed as this locally undesirable land use, right? It has the noise and congestion that comes with it, the stereotypes about class and race of people who've been nearby. And from my earlier work, even renters who are pro-housing supply in the aggregate, they get supply and demand. Uh, they're on board with citywide increase in supply. They may propose new market rate housing in their immediate neighborhood because they're worried about that kind of uh, inducing some sort of demand in their local context, and they'll, they'll pose that specific individual project. So when we map this on uh, to a at-large city, we start to think about that in this case, uh, the city council is only going to be responsive to the types of neighborhoods that you both just described, these highly motivated, highly mobilized, generally white, wealthier homeowner communities. Mm -hmm. They really don't care about these minority uh, parts of the city because they're not important for their voting bloc. And the number of at-large council members that, that I interviewed um, that said, well, the benefit of the at-large system is that you don't just have one person you can appeal to to fix something. You can appeal to all you know, five members of us of city council. I mean, I don't know what was in their heart and mind, but as a political scientist, it's laughable to think that they would care because they just don't need those votes. Those aren't the, that isn't their coalition. So in that type of city, the housing we would expect, these unwanted land uses, could be easily channeled into these minority neighborhoods that are not part of that dominant voting coalition. Mm -hmm. But when you switch or adopt a district election system, now that everyone has a seat at the table, this norm of legislative deference makes a huge difference. And that's because now there's each neighborhood has that ability to block the thing that they don't want. I'm saying neighborhood and district kind of interchangeably here, um, yeah, but each yeah. district has the ability to block something that they don't want. And therefore, if you go around to each district, it's going to be very hard to get that development cited. So putting these two things together, our questions are, responding to, to, to how you set it up, right? do these district elections decrease the production of new housing because each neighborhood has the ability to veto the projects? And we find, yes, yes, it does. And then as a mechanism, can we see what's happening with inside the cities? Under those at-large elections, was housing being channeled into the minority neighborhoods well, we'd expect there to be you know, the least responsiveness because uh, those aren't parts of the dominant voting coalition. And we find that to be true within the six cities that we do a deep dive into. And then second is once those six cities adopt district elections, is this decrease in the housing supply coming from these minority neighborhoods that have now gained power and they are part of that log roll and they're able to kind of push back on things they don't want. Mm -hmm. And that is also what we found, that the tightening of the supply was coming from an inability of the council to now channel in these unwanted land uses into the places that have the least political power. Right. Now everywhere has the same sort of veto power. And how big were these effects? So how much was permitting reduced overall? And uh, what, did, what did that look like at the, at the level of the district? Like, was it, you know, these other districts just ended up 
Now, were they used to build more? Now they built the same as other districts, or were they still building more than the traditionally more exclusionary districts? What did that look like? So what we found is that there was this decrease in particularly multifamily housing, which we can talk a bit about these differences between multifamily and single family housing. Uh, again, to why that may be. That's what we expected, though, that the biggest drop would be in multifamily housing. Mm-hmm. And it seemed in these cities that switched under the California Voting Rights Act, in this particular set of cities that we looked at for uh, the importance in causal identification, these decreases were around 55% decrease in multifamily housing wow. permitted each year in the number of units. When we look at the cities where we would expect the biggest effects, these cities that have, that are just kind of ripe for district elections, they have high levels of segregation, or they have a large minority population that's underrepresented on council, or they just have this measured gap in terms of how underrepresented that minority population is. What we'd expect is big effects. There we saw effects on the scale of a 75% drop in the multifamily housing permitted each year. And so these effects on aggregate supply uh, were were quite larger than we, we actually expected. And when we looked within six cities and we did a deep dive into where these discretionary permits were going, kind of housing that's most susceptible to the political pressures on the city council, there we saw that the housing that was being channeled into minority neighborhoods, those minority neighborhoods were taking on around 30% more housing each year than comparable white neighborhoods in Mm. the same city. And once they switched to district elections, that inequality was completely erased. There was no statistical difference between the white and minority neighborhoods anymore which is what we would expect if everyone has that veto power at the table. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those are huge impacts, though, for permits to drop by basically half. Yeah, it's a a little unsettling, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) That's all it takes, yeah. You you did test a few other hypotheses, and and you mentioned that you you thought this would be primarily in multifamily housing. If you could just quickly explain why that was your expectation that this would disproportionately affect multifamily housing. Sure thing. So when it comes to the politics of housing, all housing uh, isn't equally opposed. I mentioned a host of reasons why people may not like new housing in their immediate community. And all those reasons um, tend to be less problematic under single family housing. Some people say it's, well, it's the, just the aesthetics. It's more of a fit for neighborhood character. But we can think about what that means in, in reality. It often means fewer people, right? You have one family unit versus a, uh, an apartment that can hold 10 or 12 families or what have you. Mm-hmm. That's going to lead to less congestion. Okay, so it cuts down on some of the noise, some of the possibly air pollution from cars. The housing is going to be built generally on the outskirts of the city. So it's just going to have fewer neighbors to affect. And so it's just kind of less politically volatile. But the big thing here is that it's, it's, it's generally going to be more expensive per unit almost always. And so this avoids a lot of people's concerns about the integration along class and and racial lines because race is so highly correlated with income in this country. Mm-hmm. And so there is just this whole kind of bucket of reasons people may be more less opposed to single family housing. So even if you empower a neighborhood to block housing, they may be less inclined to block the single family housing just because they're like, well, actually, this is this is okay. That's not the housing I was concerned about, or the housing that I think is spurring gentrification. These instead of these large market rate apartment buildings. But the other thing is the political process behind the approvals. So multifamily housing, and I would say nearly all multifamily housing in in the uh, California has to go through a discretionary review process. And California is particularly difficult about this. And this includes public hearings where the community can come and kind of really make their voices heard and and signal that they're going to vote out of office anyone who supports this. Mm -hmm. But it also requires a legislative approval by the planning commission. 
uh, not to mention many additional design boards in some California cities. And even though these commissions are not directly elected by voters, that they're appointed by the city council. So there is some sort of connection there where a commissioner may want to keep their job after the next election cycle. And so because this multifamily housing is A, more strongly opposed, and B, the type of housing that actually has kind of political pressure on it, because that's to go through this political process, that's where we expect to have these biggest swings in approval. And what that also means is that uh, Asya and I had to spend one summer going through over 2,000 public meeting minutes of these planning commissions <laughs> and city councils in order to geocode um, these, these development permits across uh, six different cities in an eight-year panel. So it was a very labor-intensive process, but we think we isolated exactly the types of housing where we would expect to see an effect if an effect existed. And lo and behold, we found it. Did you find that there was basically no difference in single family or was it just a smaller drop? It was too noisy to make much up. It was a much smaller okay. drop, but it was also noisier. So it's hard to say what exactly is going on there. Gotcha. So you describe this dynamic in the title of your paper and, and in several places in the paper as the supply equity trade-off, where you're losing some housing production, but gaining some equity in how it's distributed and also just representationally. But as you know, underproduction of housing has its own implications for equity, because we know from many studies that when you don't build enough housing, prices rise more rapidly. And as you say in the conclusion, in terms of housing outcomes, you may be trading spatially concentrated impacts from housing construction, like traffic and noise and these kinds of things, for the spatially diffuse impacts of rising prices. And in either case, people of color are disproportionately renters and disproportionately low income. And so the diffuse burden of higher housing costs is also going to hit households of color disproportionately hard. I don't bring that up to undermine the positive aspects of district elections, but for me, it does drive home how you rarely seem to get better overall outcomes by increasing the number of veto points in a system, which is sort of what's going on here. So we've had a system of local control over housing and land use decisions for generations, and that system has been dominated by people who are disproportionately older, whiter, wealthier, and property owning. And we're, you know, I think rightly trying to equalize the voices of younger people, poorer people, people of color, renters, um, or even, you know, overweight their concerns, if anything, given how long and, and how dramatically things have been kind of swung in the other direction for so long. But if all we're doing is giving those latter groups the same power to say no, that doesn't seem like it's going to get us where we need to go. And, and I'm, I'm saying things you're aware of because this is all in your paper. I also don't want to imply that anyone's saying this is the only thing we need to do to improve equity. So I don't want to set up a straw man here. But I'm curious, you know, for both of you, what your thoughts are on what the lessons we might take from this, since I, I don't think anyone's takeaway here is, well, district elections reduce housing production, therefore we shouldn't do them. Yeah, in, in the paper, you know, we, we, we try to grapple with this at the end uh, and and think about what the overall takeaway is and echoing your sentiments. I think we, we frame the equity as, as kind of potentially short-lived for the, the reasons you exactly described. But I, I push back against people who argue that therefore this type of reform is, is, is the wrong fit. Um, I think it's, it's, it's an incomplete fit. We need additional components to try to achieve both of these goals. But 
the idea that the status quo of like of seeing this type of lack of representation both geographic and and therefore along racial income lines and that it is convenient for trying to pursue something like a collective outcome like like housing just doesn't doesn't quite uh cut it for me in terms of allowing it to persist and mm-hmm. i think your your allusion to kind of these these veto points it's inherent in the american system american politics even at the federal level is built around negative power it goes back to the, the founding and the fears of establishing a strong central government. You need to have these checks and, and balances. And so I think I think it extends across a whole wealth of these policies, particularly ones that have spatially concentrated costs uh, that I've done some other research on. Um, and that are, I think are very concerning for responding to even things as far away from housing as the opioid epidemic, where I've done other projects looking at bipartisan nimbyism towards opioid addiction treatment clinics, Mm. as well as clean energy infrastructure that that we need to respond to to climate change. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's very well said. And I think there's there's just a lot to unpack in the tension between sort of the political voice at a a neighborhood level and the need for, you know, uh, goods that actually have this huge regional ramifications. And you know, I don't think anyone, or I hope nobody would argue that it's just okay to have a situation where entire neighborhoods just, you know, get run over and don't have political voice, right? I mean, that that does not lead to good outcomes. We, you know, anybody who wants to really needs to be convinced of that can just go look at the siting of freeways throughout, you know, U.S. cities. Like, it, that's not where we want to be. And I think, may, you know, at the same time, some of the some of the concerns that you raised at the end of your paper and that the chain raised to sort of reiterated, you know, they're, they they matter. And, and I think I can think of two of them that come up. But one is just that if you have a neighborhood of renters, the ability to block a project actually just isn't that useful, right? If you have a neighborhood of homeowners, you block a project and what happens in that neighborhood, values go up. And so you preserve the neighborhood as you like it. And then your, the, your wealth rises. If you have a neighborhood of renters and you block a project, rents go up, right? <laughs> And, and now you've preserved your neighborhood, at least for a little while, but you, you know, it's rent, right? And, and so your neighborhood's going to change, even if it doesn't change physically, you or, or, or your neighbors who you've come to be you know, accustomed to seeing are going to either uh, face more financial distress or have to move out or, and so forth. And so a lot of the, the housing problem that's faced by people in low-income renter neighborhoods is related to, but somewhat separate from their uh, their their lack of political voice, right? I mean, their lack of political voice matters, but you know, if you were to think of like in an optimal world, and of course we're not in it, it's less that they should be able to block housing. It's more that they should be able to force housing to go other places. Hmm. That that under the 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 at large system, and certainly you see this happen in lots of cities. You know, uh, housing that no one wants, multifamily housing, it just gets dumped in neighborhoods that don't have a lot of voice, but from, a, from an economic perspective, that changes the neighborhood, which is bad, and it's done over the objections of the neighborhood, and that's also bad, but it probably doesn't raise rents, right? But if you, if you wanted to, to preserve the integrity of that neighborhood and keep rents down, you would need to literally put it in a rich neighborhood. And so that's kind of not what just giving the political voice to block things. So in, in some ways, you almost need to empower these neighborhoods even more to ground this a little bit to what Mike just said, my experience in Los Angeles, sort of in in more kind of advocacy circles rather than academic circles, is that 
there's pretty widespread agreement that we need to build a lot more housing in affluent areas, the West Side, the wider traditionally exclusionary neighborhoods. But the community-based organizations that represent communities of color, poor communities, unhoused people, there's there's an agreement there, but it is challenging to push that as a as a political effort. I think, you know, for, for good reasons, like these are communities that are have been on their back foot, that are in a defensive position in many respects, and to expect them to be the ones to lead the charge on upzoning wealthy neighborhoods is just, it's asking a lot. And I'm not sure it's it's realistic to ask that of them. So that that kind of builds up to this this transition where in the conclusion of your paper, you mentioned something that really mm-hmm. resonated with me. Maybe because in my book, I sort of make a similar point, but you basically separate or distinguish um, this problem of supply from the problem of equity. And basically, if switching from at-large to district elections is good for representational equity, but bad for housing supply, maybe the answer is not to throw out the representational equity idea, but to think about complementary solutions to the supply problem. So in this case... You know, what if we combine district elections with state intervention of some kind in land use, planning, housing policies? We get to keep the benefits of the district elections, both in terms of representation and a better distribution of housing between neighborhoods. But we increase the total amount of housing by pressuring cities uh, or incentivizing them to approve more housing overall, whether that's by more aggressive housing targets builder's remedy kind of things, withholding money for infrastructure investments, or what have you. That approach is, I think, also better than the state intervention without the shift to district elections, so sort of the inverse, because that might lead to more housing but continued over-concentration in minority neighborhoods, which is not a good outcome either. So by putting them together, we get the best of both worlds, at least in theory. Could you talk a little bit about this, because this is sort of where you conclude the paper, and maybe we can also talk about the example of uh, that you use of military-based closures and how bundled reforms help to break that logjam. So you hit the nail on the head, and I, I think that's that's our optimistic takeaway. Um, I'm optimistic about it, but I think it's really hard to too confidently project what's going to happen in equilibrium when these policies get rolled out, and if there is a strong, say, top-down mandate for local housing targets. It could very well be that we lose the norm of legislative deference, right? So now, even though you have a minority member of the city council that's able to veto things that they don't like, then you have the other N minus one city council members decides to just gang up on them and say, well, we are actually a majority now. We want to protect our seats and you're not part of our log roll. That could happen. Uh, it could be that another cleavage emerges, right? That all of a sudden, maybe you have stronger parties formed at the local level that cleave differently along these housing politics then. And so instead of racially polarized voting, you have another type of polarized voting. It doesn't match the districts that you came up with. And it's it becomes really difficult all of a sudden. Uh, we don't know. I think the good news is that as this reform rolls out and more and more cities are every morning, I start by uh, looking on Google to see what new cities have decided to adopt district elections. So we're just going to get more data and combine with the better data coming from the California um, Housing and Community Development Department um, will be able to, to track this even better. So fingers crossed for, for that. As for 
The other example of military bases, I, I referenced in the paper, this is some great work by uh, Rick Hills and David Schleicher, uh, when they're looking at what they call a zoning budget. And their takeaway from the closing of military bases was that this was very difficult until basically there was a decision by Congress to solve this collective action problem by creating base realignment and closure commissions, also known as BRAC. And the two big reforms there were something somewhat similar, but it, it was the commissions took the control away from Congress and they were using kind of these standardized practices to evaluate which bases would be closed. And that could be something similar to a statewide housing body trying to think in a less, a more dispassionate way about housing targets at the local level. And second was bundling together these closures into one big list that would be approved by the president. And technically, Congress could have a joint resolution kind of uh, knocking it down. But it was very different than the iterated nature of deciding on individual base closures, mm-hmm. which is also you know, kind of similar to how we've been talking about this. We've talked about these individual housing proposals being voted up or down. And Mike was talking about uh, you know, the ability of, of a neighborhood to, to block something they don't like, when really you know, the, the question is, can we start to bundle this housing proposals together and think about uh, what is a bargain that can be struck now with previously politically weak neighborhoods having equal power in their ability uh, in, in building a coalition to get a, an overall package through. And so I think that, that just brings it full circle that something like what is discussed in the paper, what, what, what we just walked through, Shane, is we, would kind of mimic these trends that we saw in improving even something as seemingly unrelated as, as closing military bases. It's still a policy with spatially concentrated cost, which is a notoriously difficult political problem to solve. I hope that, that, that our contribution to this conversation is thinking about the policy outcomes and the byproducts that are most directly affected by this type of institutional change, which in, in some ways, when we were interviewing people out in California, it was surprising that we would talk about housing as something that we cared about, why we were looking at this. And even the city council members that we were talking to or the planning commissioners didn't quite get it. Like, huh, that's interesting you're talking about housing with this. I had crossed my mind, which is actually really good for our causal identification study because it's not <laughs> like they're selecting into these collections because they want to constrain the housing supply. Right. But it was baffling to, to us. So I, I think one of our goals is to try to raise the sense of what are these other downstream outcomes. Um, but I think my hope, you know, would be that there's more that comes with it. So whether that's a top-down pressure from the state or um, you know, some other type of institution that we move to, like a proportional representation model or some sort of uh, ranked choice voting design. Those are things that we've thought about loosely, but we haven't deeply dug into uh, when it comes to modeling out what it means for geographic spatial representation and the, the distribution of spatial outcomes. Yeah, and I, that, that is pretty, I, I guess that makes sense. It is kind of remarkable that the city councilors weren't really thinking about it in terms of housing, although it, I mean, talk about exogenous. Um, the so that is good, but I guess it, you know, it's it's maybe something about housing that it's, you know, most neighborhoods in California, you know, I mean, this is the story of of the housing crisis. They don't change much, right? And so uh, you could understand where your typical constituent, particularly a constituent who just feels like the government isn't being super responsive isn't thinking about development because chances are, if you just grabbed a random neighborhood, no one's proposing it. But of course, when housing is proposed, it becomes incredibly salient, right? And so it may not be a motivating force for a legislative change or a districting change or something like that, because normally you're thinking about, yeah, my God, there's been a pothole there forever. The, you know, the school stinks, what have you. 
I, that's more of the day to day. But then as soon as someone says, oh, yeah, this is, you know, this is going to be 15 apartments. You're like, whoa, hang on. Like mm -hmm. now it's silly. But, but that's just not going to describe most people in most of California most of the time. And that is a yeah, it's great for your identification. <laughs> I think I think it might also just be, you know, in these at large cities, if you have these unrepresentative people in office at the time that the shift is being made, they're representing probably the places that aren't building a lot of housing to begin with. And so they're not like personally concerned or feel like it's an effect on them. They're already able to sort of offload it to these underrepresented yeah. areas. It's probably so, a bit of both, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the funny thing is that if you are representing these 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 districts, yeah, you may be concerned about uh, uh, your reelection under district-based system where there's kind of less to go to go around. You're all from the same neighborhood, like the Riviera and Santa Barbara, if you will. But also that the housing in your neighborhood probably isn't going to change under district elections, right? Because we don't have this affirmative policy of right. driving in supply or trying to hit a target, actually. Instead, you just kind of are shutting off the spigot in, in, in all neighborhoods, not to use too kind of uh, removed of, of a metaphor there. So it, it actually doesn't make a whole lot of difference to them. It's, it's, it's going to make a difference to the people who now have representation in their housing outcomes. But again, even talking to these minority coalitions, they were just more concerned about having to see at the table and not necessarily saying, this is about housing issues. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think I really do think it's it's the case that that housing in many places in California is disproportionately located in less powerful neighborhoods. But in California, we also just don't build much housing. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, that the difference is that difference between more likely and most, right? It's so like most of the time, that's just not on your mind because it really isn't happening. Although when it does, you notice. And I guess one last question I might have for you, or maybe it's not last, I guess we have 10 minutes left, is I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how many districts or how big the districts need to be. You know, because like Los Angeles has famously has, has 15 districts. We actually have 15 at large sort of governments because they're so big and so heterogeneous and the typical city council member has, you know, this vast expanse that's a mixture of homeowners and uh, and renters, and we still manage to put a lot of our housing in the, you know, a very small share of the land area that's disproportionately minority. And you know, so you have people who say, "Well, we should actually have thirty-five or fifty council members and things like that." You, does anything flow from your research that would, you know, suggest anything along those lines? Yeah, um, you know, just just for some context, there was an earlier statistic uh, I think that Shane mentioned about less than twenty percent of cities having. Uh, district elections. And so so for context for, for the audience, these district elections tend to be in these large cities where just you kind of lose the ability to say that it, it's a good thing to have, that you lose the ability to say that it's not important to have geographic representation across a city as big as, say, a Los Angeles, right? So even if it sounds like only 18% of cities have these, it's actually much more than 18% of the, the, the population in, in the legislative area. But the second part is, is yes, the size of these districts does matter. You get some very interesting stuff in a formal model type approach, which we're working on about, well, actually, if you have district elections, but you have a big enough district, so it's functionally some sort of like they're running in a mini city, well, they could actually support housing's various parts of, like you have inequalities within the even district where it's no longer talking about like a neighborhood level. It, it, a district means something very different. And that can be captured in LA, for instance, with the institution of neighborhood councils. I believe you have like 99 neighborhood councils that 
they can call themselves a neighborhood. That's very different from the 15 districts, right? So there's, right. there's very yeah. big difference there. Um, but the third thing is, is really thinking about that there are these other effects of district elections. And this is the stuff I think was much more on the minds of the advocates for this reform, which was about what does it mean to run for city council? Like the district elections could usher in a whole new wave of people connecting with their voters because it's just cheaper to run an election if you don't have to run mm-hmm. citywide. Right. Uh, you're not fighting for citywide media. And in one case, uh, particularly in Escondido, new council member, she said that she she actually just went to every door in her district. Now they had district elections and was able to win election that way. It was a majority uh, Latino neighborhood, but just that that would be an impossible apparatus to run. And so someone like her could not have likely not have won election in Escondido otherwise, just based on the scale of what it's like to run a run an election there. Absolutely. And, and to sort of tag on to that, I mean, you, you can't you can't walk the council district in Los Angeles. Right. I mean, it's just you are you just the, the idea of running for Los Angeles City Council is akin to running for governor in some states. Right. And so um, it you know, whatever benefits come from precinct, they're, they're not the same as having that neighborhood level accountability because you can be a council member in Los Angeles. And, and we all know from experience, just completely ignore some of the neighborhoods that you are technically accounted accountable to. And, and you're absolutely right. The neighborhood council system is designed to mitigate that a little bit. But of course, those councils don't have anywhere near the power of the actual elected official. I think this might be a good time as we're coming to a close here just to discuss a few alternatives, um, how we might do things differently in the future or how some places are already doing things a little differently. So we've got at large, which is about two thirds of all cities. We've got district, which is another 14, 15 percent, but disproportionately large cities. And then we have some cities, as I mentioned, Seattle and I think Boston and others that have some at large seats some district seats trying to kind of do a hybrid. What other options are out there that might kind of resolve some of these issues a little better? I know one idea that I feel like is gaining traction in some circles, at least, is the idea of of multi-member districts where you have, you know, multiple districts, but within each district, multiple people are elected. And so even though these other types of representation aren't the focus of your study, do you have any thoughts on this, any potential for them to address some of the downsides of district elections and at-large elections for that matter? Yes, um, I think some sort of multi-member district approach seems promising in, in terms of mitigating some of these concerns. You'd have, naturally, you have larger districts. I mean, there's a lot of variables you could play with here. You could try to increase just the size of city council as well. But I, I think a challenge is even if you're, if the goal is to remove this tying of a of representation to a specific geographic area because we think that promotes some sort of uh, you know ability to put nimbyism into to into policy a- outcomes if you still have the polarized voting and you still have uh, racial segregation even that individual who runs who is a, a racial minority is going to appeal to a group that is kind of uh, you know spatially concentrated in a way that they're kind of representing a district anyway, right? You're, you're aggregating those votes. They're getting put through the system because the system still has the polarized voting, still has the racial segregation. You still have mm-hmm. kind of a similar outcome. And maybe they still have the ability to block housing they don't want if you maintain some sort of legislative deference. So I, I, I just, I hesitate to kind of paint too far out in the timeline about how these assumptions are going to respond to the different institutions. But I think there may be other ways around it 
that uh, try to break some of these other patterns that, that are creating this, this, this problem to begin with, rather than coming up with a institutional design that is, is maybe too out there for mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the average voter. Because I think the average voter, like the reason why districts catch on is the average voter kind of gets it in the urban context. And they right. kind of get it in terms of, oh, our House of Representatives works this way too. We have it, we draw a district, yeah. it's just natural. Just going back to the the issue of like salience of these issues at different levels, it does feel like to some extent we're we're already figuring out the right answer here in California and I think other places. I do think maybe just more state intervention plus district elections is a pretty good solution that we've already hit on. You know, just looking at things like polling uh, here in California, if you go to a public meeting or if you listen to certain corners of the media and so forth, it seems like there's this really large constituency of people who are opposed to building more housing. But when you poll people at a countywide or statewide level, it's pretty overwhelming support for building more housing. Even when you say explicitly, like, you know, do you support housing in your neighborhood, even if it's a little bit bigger than what exists right now, you still get, you know, 60, 65 percent support. And it just seems like people, as Mike said earlier, people get really worked up when a project is proposed in their neighborhood. But for one, it only takes half a dozen people calling their council member for them to really take notice. Um, and that's not at all representative of the broader community. But, you know, I think just more importantly, people don't seem to call up their state legislator when these kinds of things happen. So when the state legislature says, you know, every city has to allow accessory dwelling units or you have to allow two duplexes on a lot. You know, there's still some backlash to that, but it just doesn't seem to to have the same electoral consequences that people putting forward these bills. Uh, Michael Anderson from Sightline had a good article on this in both California and Oregon. The people who put forward these bills in Oregon, the the lead on their missing middle bill is running for governor and in, in the leading position. The people who put forward things like SB 330 and SB 50 here in California, they're winning their elections, re-elections handily. So maybe we've already figured it out. I think one of the big puzzles here is also trying to think about the, the kind of um, the fog of politics for some of these local races where, you know, what, certainly once you get outside of L.A., uh, people are working uh, with very kind of limited staff, you know, and so mm-hmm. if you think the polling is so limited at the presidential or Congress level in terms of getting the finger on the pulse, what you leave legislators with, city councilors with is, well, who they talk to, who shows up, who's calling the office. And even if it's like, well, we got 20 calls, 15 against five in favor, that's your poll. So, so <laughs> I think this is the key point where yeah. we think about uh, organizations, um, kind of political organizing and mobilization. It's, it's not so much to persuade, although persuasion is an important part of it, but showing that there's this going to be this political insulation for people who are trying to push back against the knee-jerk reaction of the kind of uh, vociferous opposition that shows up at that 8 p.m. meeting on a Wednesday. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think that it's almost like a, a money ball problem that exists in politics, which, you know, the the, the premise of Moneyball was that professional baseball had these rules of thumb that turned out to be like largely groundless. You know, the, the size of a batter's biceps would determine his uh, batting average or something. And I think, you know, there, there's a rule of thumb that like if you talk to even a part time elected official, they they, they mentioned some version of it. Like one phone call actually represents 300 people. And one letter represents 500. And it's like, well, yeah, or, or it might represent one cranky guy. Right. We don't really know. And I think mm-hmm. that 
one strong hypothesis when you look at sort of what Shane was talking about and, and then think about, as you were talking about, Michael, the, the relative lack of information we have is that we might just have a, a political system that sort of underweights the possibility that lots of people are indifferent. You know, we always want to want to scale up and say, oh, we, we got two phone calls. That must mean half the district is mad. And it could, but it could also mean 20 people are mad or it could mean two people are mad. And we just have no, most elected officials have no way of discerning between that. So they end up being very risk averse. Michael, before we go, is there anything from this paper that we missed that you wanted to make sure we cover or, uh, you know, failing that? Anything you want to tell us about upcoming research? Um, I think the, the the one of the larger takeaways, I, and just the, the more I look at this, the, the more I see it, is is how concentrated costs play a role in, in in all of our the big policies that we're grappling with, like like as a country. And then just most recently, when it comes to something like climate change, we see these progressive polls putting out something like you know data for progress saying from from last year, sixty percent of voters are in favor of some sort of green new deal. Well, a key part of that is expanding kind of transmission lines in order to, to get renewable energy sources from the places where they exist, where wind is, where hydropower is, to dense urban environments that are gonna consume it. Well, we saw just last year that despite 60% of voters favoring this, we saw 60% of Mainers, voters in Maine, voting against the construction of a, a clean energy transmission line from Quebec to, to Massachusetts cities. And it was framed as just this is a bad deal for Maine, right? And, and, and the vote you know, would not only block that, it would make transition lines require, you know, in Maine, a two-thirds legislature, legislative appro- approval, right. like just creating more veto points, more negative power in the system. Um, and so not only is the outcome bad, but just like the fact that we're voting on this, it's, it's like a $71 million campaign for that one issue. Wow. And so I think that the, the lesson, I know that the, the, the podcast focuses a lot on housing issues, is that these types of problems and blocks and grappling with the supply equity trade-off as, as Asi and I frame it uh, is something that we're seeing everywhere. And I think that uh, I'm excited that, that uh, people are thinking about this. Um, Ezra Klein had a great piece recently in response to right. the, the challenges that UC Berkeley has seen. Um, but I'm, I, I, I don't see the big structural change. I'm not sure what that is yet that is going to help us solve this housing problem at the local level, but even things like energy infrastructure, opioid addiction responses, that, that's going to play out at the federal and state level. Yeah. And so when I think about the research ahead, I, I just think there's like three key points that, that, that I'm looking at to, to address this. Like one is the behavioral responses. How do voters respond when these things get put near them? And what can we learn about what stimulates people to respond negatively or, or positively? Two, what this paper is focused on is where the institutional reforms, how do our political systems affect that supply equity trade-off and what we get and where. And three, and I think it's the hardest one for me to think about a, a how to grapple with, B, how to, how to implement it is, is how do we get people to adopt these institutions once we've maybe come up with them? And right now, I, I think we see a lot of, of, of effort to kind of rip power away from the local level um, and, and kind of place it into some state or federal hand. i I'm worried about how that's going to play out in the long run with our given increased focus on on uh, racial justice and equity and the mistakes that our country has made in the past with dealing with centralization versus the local level of power. Mm-hmm. But I, I yeah, I, I hope there's enough momentum to, to, to try to get there. Michael Hankinson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You can read more about Professor Hankinson's research and find our show notes and a transcript of the interview at our website, lewis.ucla.edu. 
The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and Mike is at Michael Manville 6. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.